Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog on Pickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my very first day. You can read my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And on the show today to tell her story is Arlena. She is the host of ODAT Chat, which is a relatively new podcast about sobriety. And I had the good fortune to be a guest on Arlena's podcast recently. And I highly recommend you listen to it because she's such a good interviewer. She got me to get really, really vulnerable and talk about some <laughs> things that I've pretty much never talked about. So uh, that's worth a listen. And then as it turned out, when I revealed like one of my big dark deep dark secrets she was like oh that happened to me too so we had a me too moment unexpected on air so Arlena is here today and we're going to talk about her story and we're going to talk about what it's like to be podcast hosts and what our experience is like on this side of the mic so Arlena welcome to the bubble hour thank you so much for having me I'm excited to be here I'm excited to have you, and um, I feel like I was like, okay, this is my chance to get even with her, but um, <laughs> <I know. laughs> in the best of ways. <laughs> but um, I, I just thought it might be really interesting for us to talk a little bit about um, some of the experiences that we have as hosts and how our experience differs from the listeners and maybe just yeah. sort of to pull back the curtain a little bit on that. But first, I'd like our listeners to get to know you a little bit. So let's start by having you share your story. Sure, I would love to. Um, So I usually start off by kind of going over um, my family of origin was like, because I feel like that kind of sets the stage and helps people to sort of identify, um, you know, and relate from that place. And um, so I've always lived in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area in California, and uh, we're like in the hub of uh, Silicon Valley. And, uh, you know, dad worked for Lockheed, NASA, and places like that. And um, my parents divorced very young, um, about seven. And mom worked in high tech as an administrator. Um, so my dad is um, originally from Kentucky and moved out here. And my mother is actually from Mexico City. So, um, you know, we were a little, our family was a little bit different than all the other families in our, in our neighborhood. Um, I never actually saw our household as, as biracial until I was an adult and somebody else was talking about their, you know, Hispanic Caucasian families being biracial. And it was kind of interesting because I had never, you know, saw it that way. But it was kind of interesting in the sense that even and with my own family, I, we didn't really feel like we belonged anywhere. 
Um, I was with my dad's side of the family. They saw us as being Mexican. And when I was with my Mexican side of the family, they saw us as being Caucasian. So it was kind of interesting. Um, But uh, yeah, my parents divorced when I was about seven. And um, that was coupled with some early um, child sexual abuse um, experiences, you know, from a very early I had this very negative um, image of myself. Um, I had been raised in the church, and I sort of got this idea that I was going to be perfect, and I just was falling short. And I think at a very early age, I decided that if I couldn't be good, then I was going to be good at being bad. And um, that's kind of like where I, that's kind of like, that kind of launched me into well, that's how I saw myself in the world. And um, obviously, I didn't start drinking and using at seven. Uh, my parents are super nice people, very upstanding. But they're very straight. Like, they didn't drink or anything at home. So uh, my future behavior wasn't, like, learned behavior. Um, but when my parents divorced and um, my mom started dating, I remember I have an older sister. Um, and she like perfect student. She was the compliant child. I was not. And um, mom went out on a date one time and she left the sister and I home alone. And I don't know where I got the idea, but I thought it would be a great idea to drink some alcohol that was, there was like a dusty old bottle in the back of some cabinet, probably left over from some holiday party or something. Um, I thought it'd be a great drink um, so that's what I did so I and I don't not even sure how old I was I think I, I was it was under 10 um because I met my mom met my stepdad when I was about 10 he gave me my first journal when I was 10 years old for my 10th birthday and but so that night my mom goes out on this I think it's a great idea and I remember that first drink it was yesterday I remember the excitement over, I'm going to do this fun thing. And I remember um, the alcohol burning my lips. It burnt all the way down. And when it hit bottom, I just remember that warmth that spread through my body. And what was really interesting is the juxtaposition between um, I had been feeling bad about myself. And then suddenly with this weight removed, I felt awesome. And I had never had such a contrast in experience in my entire life. And I was hooked from that time on. And, um, you know, I remember, you know, I was just drinking by myself. My sister wasn't drinking. And I'm going to tell you, like, party of one, right? I remember feeling numb, like, fell down in the hallway and it didn't hurt. And everything was hilarious and funny. Super annoying to my sister. I don't even remember, like, or have any experience of that situation was like um but I did get sick I threw up everywhere and my sister cleaned me up and put me to bed and you know she never said anything my mother Hmm. and I come to find out later I you know adulthood I was like I wonder why you never said anything to mom and she's like because I would have gotten in trouble so that kind of gives you an insight as to the sort of the dynamic that I grew up with which was you don't take any personal responsibility, but you are responsible for other people. Hmm. So mm-hmm. it was just kind of, that's just kind of, and then my mom, bless her heart, she was working so hard. And my 
a great, he was a great guy, but um, my mom was working really hard and trying to support these two kids. And I just felt like my predominant feelings when I was a kid uh, were guilty and wrong. You know, my mom had two feelings as well. She was either really happy or she was really pissed. And I felt like she saved her happy face for the outside world. Um, we were always in trouble. We, it, it, like, was ever, like the house wasn't clean enough. My homework wasn't done. Uh, I was getting bad grades. I was just always in trouble. And that alcohol, um, later I started smoking weed when I think I was like 14 or something in junior high. And that's right around the time I was almost drinking regularly, semi-regularly. Um, you know, just, I was just chasing that feeling. I just wanted to feel the relief from what I was feeling all the time, which was, you know, I just thought out about who I was. And I chased that feeling until I was 25. And between the time of my first drink and my last drink, all kinds of stuff happened. I mean, I, I would have what I called episodes where I'd go out drinking and I would just explode. And the next morning I would I'd wake up and I'd be like, what was that all about? It was like a mystery to, even to me, right? Um, I had these two, I had these two alter egos come out when I was drinking. It was either badass Betsy or wimpy Wendy because (laughs) I was either fighting or crying. And then just recently I realized, you know what? My alter egos had an alter ego because at some point, slutty Karen would come out (laughs) and everybody loves slutty Karen, (laughs) let me tell you. Um, But it was just one of those things. Once I took that first drink, I could not predict him. I could not predict my hair. But um, I was so desperate to feel different that I didn't care. I was willing to pick up the price tag. So that's kind of how it went. I, I didn't get any DUIs, mostly because I had a uh, married boyfriend who was in the sheriff's department. And Did I, you say I got a married pulled. boyfriend? I did. I was not. Boy, Karen is right. I know my morals were off for a little bit back then, but um, I like to say now that the only married man I'm with is my husband, (laughs) which he appreciates. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so I know that it sounds so terrible because that, and it's very difficult for me to relate to the woman that I, it's hard to reconcile the woman I was with who I am today, right? Because everything is so different. And it's been different for so long because I got sober when I was 25 and now I'm 49. I'll be 50 this year. And um, I have not faced Arlena, are you there? I think I lost you, so you're going to have to call back in. It's going to rejoin us. But interesting, just as Arlena is dialing back in, I think what we just heard her talk about was all these different parts of herself, and that's really quite interesting because we do that. You know, my therapist just had me do an exercise recently where I wrote, wrote out all the parts of myself and all the different versions of myself that there are, and she sort of said, you know, you don't have to banish these people. You need to learn your, learn to live your life so that you're in your highest self. 
but you can invite all of those parts to be present and say, you know, it's like I'm having a party and you're all invited and I'm going to drive the bus. Like, thanks for showing up and thinking I need funny gene or, or serious gene to come and take over here. But the fact is um, I just need, I just need um, me. And the, those parts of me are there to sort of serve a purpose, but they, we can learn to sort of consult with them without letting them take over ourselves. So I'm just waiting for Alina to come back online here. Uh, seems like her connection got cut off. And then we'll resume our interview. I think we have her back. Hey, Arlena, you're back. <laughs> Hi, I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened. I was blabbering away. I'm not even sure where I cut out. <laughs> oh well, uh, That's so funny because we were talking about snafus and recording. I know. And now we'll have a real live one for our listeners to hear. Well, I will edit out the dead time. Um, okay. I'll tell you where we lost you. Was you were just talking about the fact that um, you you sort of had some different parts of self that came out when you drank, and oh, um, that's such a nice the, way to put it. Well, that's the way my therapist puts it, and and I was as we were as I was waiting for you to come back online. I shared with the listeners that my therapist did an exercise where you sort of list out all your parts of self. Like you know, I would have like bossy gene and funny gene and. And uh, and then I would I wrote a little paragraph about each one whether they were good or bad or if I liked them or if I liked being them or not. Interesting. Anyway, she said, you know, those are we need to learn to always stay in our highest self, but we don't have to banish those parts. Like they they appear for a reason. They're trying to meet a need in you that you couldn't meet some other way. So maybe slutty Karen came out because <laughs> you needed love and you were desperate for some kind of connection. And yeah. so you created a role for yourself that would get that no matter what. And so even yeah. though we betray ourselves in terms of what we know, what we believe to be right or wrong, we are really just filling a need that a part of us is desperately calling out for. 
Yeah, and, absolutely. And the goal then is to learn to always kind of live in your highest self, your best self, but still consult with those parts of you, mm-hmm. not to say that part of you is gone forever, but I, it showed up for a reason. Thanks for showing up. Come along for the ride, but I'm going to be driving the bus, but you can, you're welcome to be here sort of thing. And um, that was a really interesting exercise for, uh, for me to do and um, something I urge you and all listeners to consider as we think about ways we've behaved in the past that we don't like or that we identify as being really separate from ourselves but still a version of ourselves. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, your story was interrupted, but so I'm going to I'm going to tell you um uh where we lost you was that at that point in your story where you said you really never got into trouble because you had some sort of nefarious connections, but um there's a whole another episode. But tell right. me Let's fast forward a little bit. When you were 25, what happened that made you decide to change your relationship with alcohol? So um, I have always been ambitious and kind of an entrepreneur. I was, you know, I had like this babysitting ring when I was, you know, 13, 14 years old. And then I had a paper route. And then I've always had a job. I've I've been working since I was like 13 or 14 years old old. Um, where I was when I was 25 is that I was really driven and I was in sales and I, I had a nice apartment. I had a decent car and um, I was making real money for the time of my life and it was all starting to unravel. Mm-hmm. I had a boyfriend that, um, <laughs> poor guy, he's more of a hostage really <laughs> than a boyfriend, but <laughs> <laughs> Bless his heart. Um, and he was what I thought was my ideal and I was losing him you know my, my drinking and I was staying out late I was drinking with customers and I was losing track of time and um, I was losing him and I couldn't stop myself and I had done things like listen I practically lived in the self-help section at Barnes & Noble I, I had um, uh, Anthony Ro- Tony Robbins 30 day um, cassette program <laughs> that's how long ago it was um, and the, that was when I was first introduced to this concept that if I changed my mind or took control of my mind I could change my life and I was desperate, desperate to be anybody but me which was sort of a reoccurring theme of my entire life I wanted to be anybody but me and I was trying to be the best version of me. I was trying to recreate me. And um, always at the top of the list of any kind of goal-setting exercise was stop drinking. And I was smoking a lot of pot back then. And um, I always wanted to stop those two things, and I just couldn't. No amount of church, no amount of self-help books. Um, trying to, I learned later, what I was trying to do was I was trying to think my way in the right thing. And I later found out in recovery, in recovery that it's about living your way into right thinking. And yeah. that just demonstrates that my natural instincts are about 180 degrees from what healthy, rational recovery is about. And the for instance I'll use is um, if I was in conflict with somebody, uh, whether it was conflict at work or in a relationship within family, um, when I was hurt, I would instantly feel angry and I would want to retaliate, right, in some way. Uh, what I learned in recovery is 
this practice of praying for somebody else for them to have everything that you would want, which I thought was insane at the time. Like, like that was the last thing that would have occurred to me to bring my, to bring peace into my life and into my heart. Right. I wanted to have peace at the end of the day. And when I was sober, I was willing to do anything include for praying for the people that I was most angry with. So that was just kind of a little insight as to, you know, where my thinking was and, and how it evolved later, which was to take direction from other people who had been able to recover from alcoholism. And I found those first two people um, through the job that I was in, two of the guys that were uh, my best customers. Um, I was working for a transportation company at the time. Um, so I was dealing primarily dealing with, you know, men and from like shipping and receiving and things like that. that's a very all dominated profession. But these two guys um, started breaking down the 12 steps to me and sharing their experience, strength and hope, as they say, and offering to take me to meetings. And that's actually how I got sober is I started going to meetings. And the things that I found in meetings, which I have noticed, um, doing the podcast because I wanted to widen my experience of outside of 12-step programs, but the reoccurring themes um, was really owning and taking care of the past, like figuring it all out, figuring out what was my part, what wasn't. Um, I didn't, not something that I learned growing up uh, was appropriate responsibility and inappropriate responsibility that showed up for me when I was you know, doing the four-step writing exercise. Mm-hmm. I, I tell our listeners what that four-step is because lots wouldn't know. Right, right. So um, in the 12 step, the fourth step is about, in essence, what it is that's going over your entire life history, you know, identifying the people that um, you feel hurt by. They refer to that as resentment. So identifying people that you're resentful at very clear and very specific about what the cause is because I don't know about you but before I got sober if I was mad at somebody there was like 10 things I was thinking about and they were all muddled together so I didn't didn't have any clarity around that so this was an actual process very objective process of sorting it all out so I did identifying very specific causes for resentment and then how was I affected by those causes um, whether my self-esteem that took a hit or my personal relationship, financial insecurities, emotional insecurities, you know, what was affected in, inside me? And then the, the fourth part is what was my part? What role did I play? You know, where was I selfish, self-seeking, self-centered? What did I do to provoke other people? Um, listen, that's the tricky part because a lot of times people – I don't know. I felt like I was victimized by a lot of these people I was resentful at. It was very difficult to see that I, I played a part in any of it. Um, and so to expand on that just a tiny bit more is that um, I was told to sort of look at like the seven deadly sins. That's, you know, greed, anger, pride, lust, envy, jealousy. I'm forgetting two more, but um, <laughs> those those were... I never remember all seven at the same time, but it's just those basic, you know, what they are, they're instincts that are out of balance, you know? Um, and so where was I out of balance? 
And when I did that for the very first time, I began to see patterns. I began to see that I was taking inappropriate responsibility for other people. And I was not taking enough responsibility for myself. And it was really rooted in that idea that, um, you know, you can't control us. The only thing that you can control is yourself, right? So give me an example of inappropriate responsibility. What would that look like versus appropriate? Well, I'll go back to my family of origin. My older sister suffered from depression. And um, I remember my mom pulling me aside one day when I was, I was young. I was probably about 14 or 15 years old. And she was like, listen, she's very depressed. And there is a chance that we lose her. So we need to be vigilant. We need to do everything that we can to help her. And this message coming from my mother felt like what I heard was, I need to save my sister. Mm. And so it created a dysfunction in our relationship because I tried to control her. And when she didn't act right or when she didn't do what I thought she should do, I would get angry with her. And it really created a lot of problems in our relationship mm-hmm. because um, I could see that she was in pain and that she wasn't doing what I thought she should do to get herself out. Listen, I'm a teenager. I have no business trying to be responsible for someone's depression. You know what I mean? Right. Like, that's a big deal. But listen, back then, nobody knew anything, it seemed like. And we certainly had no no coping skills and didn't have an understanding of what was health and what wasn't, right? And just like my sister, she, I, I, would, I would drink a lot and have these crazy episodes, and she would do damage control for me. And I'll tell you, my um, kind of clarity happened. My last drunk was I was with my sister. It was kind of interesting. I actually never realized it, but she, it was, she was there at the beginning and she was there at the end. Huh. And <laughs> bookends. Isn't that weird? Yeah. yeah. Um, th- one of the my, the night I consider my bottom, she and I had gone out, and I had been drinking. I would drink before we went out. I get the buzz on, right? I drink like a couple glasses, like large, like water glass of wine before going out. And then um, there was a guy I was dating who happened to be the best friend of the married boyfriend. <laughs> it was a mess. Um, and anyway, he stood me up. And on the way home, we drove past um, my former boyfriend who was, he was actually a DUI cop, oddly enough had somebody pulled over on the side of the road and we passed him. And my sister says that I lost my mind when we passed him. I guess it just triggered all my anger, triggered all my crazy. And, um, you know, the story I heard the next day was horrifying. She said, I punched the windshield a couple places and broke it. I tried to crash the car while she was driving it. Um, we got into a physical fight. She says I kicked her in the face and she burrowed her nose. And you don't remember um, was, any of this. I don't You're remember in any of this. It's in complete blackout. I don't I had a I have a very fuzzy image. She was able to pull the car over in our neighborhood and get the keys out. She ran to a neighbor's house. Uh, a childhood friend of ours lived just down the street and they had called the police and um 
I, I just remember like losing my mind in the street, like just like a very, very fuzzy image of, and then I remember talking to police, they were going to take me to jail if I wouldn't calm down or whatever. And I just very briefly have a fuzzy outline of this girl saying it's not worth it. Mm. I don't know what happened, but I, I didn't go to jail. But the next morning I woke up and the guy that stood me up was at my house. My hand was broken, and um, my the windshield in my um, in my car was broken, and I just had that um, sinking, horrible feeling that something terrible had gone on. And I went to my sister's house, and she told me the story, and that was like the the pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization that they talk about in recovery rooms. I felt it, and I just didn't know what to do about it, and that's when I started my recovery journey, but that's not when I stopped drinking. It took me two years from that night to actually stop drinking. Hmm. It was a long time. And it's kind of interesting in the podcast. I've, I've heard people talk about, um, you know, start wrestling with the questions like, what is an alcoholic? When do you cross the line? When is drinking too much drinking? When is it just like a heavy drinker? It's just, led into all these questions that I didn't have answers for. But I just knew that I wanted to be different. It wasn't until I met people who had quit and and I actually, I worked the 12 steps and did lots of other things too. I did some therapy. Um, but they, but when I, when I finally quit, it took me about two months for the obsession to be removed but it was, I was already on that journey of, you know, doing the thing that is required in recovery, which is cleaning up the past. Sorry, that was like a long ways around to the commonalities of recovery, which is, you know, for me, it was a higher power and connection. It was about connection, finding people who could hold a safe space for me to tell my stories and for them to look at look back at me with compassion and love and understanding. I have a question for you about your recovery and your sister, because for some people, when someone sees a part of them that they don't want them to see, like your sister really was with you at your bottom and witnessed it at a level you weren't privy to. Mm -hmm. Um, Did that come between you or did it bring you closer? What was your relationship like, you know, through the early stages of your recovery and what's it like now? Um, that's a great question. Um, that can be a difficult relationship in the 23 years that I've been in recovery. Uh, so it drew us, it separated us. And actually for a short time, so what ended up happening was is I broke up with that boyfriend and I moved in with my mom and my sister. And it was just, so for a little while, she and I actually got really close. And then I met the man that was that is now my husband, and um, I spent more time with him. I spent less time with her, and we just continued to drift. And I remember trying to make amends to her early in my recovery, and she pretty much just shut me down. Mm-hmm. And I never felt like I was able to find a way back to her until very, very recently. Where and um, Do you see similarities? between yourself and her and and it's hard because I know you can't tell someone else's story for them but I have found sometimes frustration with people close to me in my life because we are so similar and I can Mm -hmm. see that 
okay, sure, I drank. And so that was my thing. And it, you know, it was pretty obvious and had to change. But I can see the little ways that maybe codependency or eating disorders or other things are cropping up in their lives. And, and it frustrates me sometimes that um, they're not healing or picking up on all this stuff that I've learned. (laughs) I don't listen yeah. to podcasts. <laughs> I know. And so do you find that at all that like you can kind of your your um recovery maybe has given you some insights that you know you can see would be useful to people around you or do you feel completely separate from that? So this this kind of leads to me to my favorite thing that I love talking about, um, because it's been so like the one thing that has been so healing for me. I'm actually I actually started writing about it um and the basic premise is if you spot it and what i saw in my sister was this um she comes from a sort of uh victim mentality mm-hmm. and i cannot tolerate that in myself like my own self-pity my own uh, victimization um, I have a very hard time practicing any kind of tolerance around that for myself. And the whole concept of if you spot it, you got it, it comes from this idea that people are mirrors or that you can't love or hate something about somebody else unless it's something that you love or hate about yourself. And right. for me, recovery is about recovering my whole self, warts and all. And I have a woman in my life um, who has thrown down the gauntlet. She's like, can you love your unlovable parts? Um, And sometimes the answer is no, but more often the answer has been yes. And that means like looking at my sister and holding her in that loving space that helped me recover when I was new. Right? Mm -hmm. Like just... And, and really, Jean, you know what the essence of that is? Is acceptance. Yes. Yeah. Not It's not approval, but it's just acknowledging reality, right? Mm-hmm. It's just acknowledging they are the way they are, and that's it. It's not my job to try to fix them. I was very confused about that for a very long time. It's not my job. Isn't it a revelation, too, to realize that when we change ourselves, we change our relationships, We've changed yeah. half of every relationship when we change ourselves. Yeah. And so those problematic relationships can be revolutionized without the other yeah. person changing at all, even though I'm really my default go-to is I love to be right. So I love to identify all the mm-hmm. ways that other people should change. But the mm-hmm. fact is when I change me, I mm-hmm. change everything about my experience. And so, you know, maybe those relationships don't bother us so much when we come at them with a little more compassion and love and gratitude. So that is very interesting. Listen, we only have a little bit more time and I wanted to get on to the topic of podcasting. So let's go in that direction. So one of the things I was going to ask you was about your biggest disaster. And I think we may have just witnessed it. (laughs) You went in my I am so sorry. (laughs) Suddenly, I was picturing you talking away, talking away by yourself, not knowing. (laughs) Yeah, listen, I heard a funny noise, and then I was like, um, are you still there? <laughs> um, yeah, as far as disasters go, I mean, 
I have a reoccurring disaster that I can't seem to get control over, which is I have an English bulldog who is hilarious. I love him. His name is Gus. Um, but he will start barking from a apparent reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so you occasionally, I, I was, um, I invited a friend who um, leads a guided meditation um, in her practice. She's a therapist and she'll do group meditation. And so we were recording uh, a meditation. Oh, no. (laughs) Barking in the middle of the meditation, which was super hilarious. And we just kind of left it in because part of meditation is accepting what is. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Your dog is maybe wiser than you know. He was contributing in in very (laughs) elevated ways to that episode. (laughs) Uh, um, You know, one thing that I find is is challenging about podcasting, and I had to really give this some thought, is deciding how much of ourselves we give to each episode as hosts, Mm -hmm. because, you know, a journalist, which we're not journalists, but a journalistic Mm -hmm. approach is that you don't become the story. You tell the story objectively. Uh, In this day and age, uh, you know, there's there's a varying degrees of how objective people are, but um, mm-hmm. ideally a journalist tells a story objectively and just tells the story without never become the story. That's like the first rule of journalism is you never become the story. Um, but in, in a podcast, the host kind of starts to develop a relationship with the listeners and, and it's okay to interject yourself a little bit. Um, and, I just wonder, is that something you've had to learn to do consciously when interacting with your guests? Or do you always just try to hold space for the guest? Or how much of yourself do you put into your podcast? Well, listening to your definition of a journal journalist, I'm feeling terribly. <laughs> because um, part of the reason I started the podcast is so that I could share what I've learned, right? And so I've been sober for a long time, and, and it was really on my heart that I wanted share the lessons I've learned. So I do interject quite a bit into into the conversations that I have because I wanted it to be more conversational. Don't you find that like a conversation is more interesting than like a, a, a one-sided dialogue? Uh, yeah, I actually on this show, I try to do a little bit of both. I usually begin by holding space for mm-hmm. the guests to tell their story and because I like to demonstrate what holding space looks like versus oh. interviewing. And then mm-hmm. we have a dialogue after. And okay. that's the format that I usually try to use. But actually in the year to come, I'm also going to start having um, one show a month that's more topical where um, we have more voices talking in on it. But I think you're right. I think it is nice to have a little bit of back and forth between the listeners and the guests, but there is that fine line of, of um, that it's not about us as hosts, it's about the mm-hmm. guests and about the kernel of truth that we can sort of suss out from every interview. And, yeah. and, and that way we're also joining the listener in who isn't able to engage in the dialogue themselves, but if we can like dig out the truth that they can relate to, then, then I feel like it brings them in on a whole nother level. And um, that's that's what I try to do. Um, mm-hmm. That's what I hope to do. And I feel like when I'm listening to podcasts, I can really tell the people that are trying to do that. And I feel like it makes a way better 
listen um, mm. as a listener of when I know that it's not just I'm not just a fly on the wall. I'm considered in the discussion a little bit. So oh, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, no, I like then, that. That brings me to another point I wanted to ask you about, which is ego, because um, I really think that that is a tricky thing as hosts of recovery podcasts in particular. I mean, you know, we it's not about us, and it's really unhealthy um, for anybody, but particularly for people in recovery, to be a victim of our own ego. So we kind of have to keep our egos in check and make sure we're doing this for the right reason and not to just like fuel our own self-importance, but to um, not at all to fuel our self-importance, but to be servants. Right. And so right. do you have to yeah. work at that at all. Like, do you have to like when someone sends you an email and says, um, thank you, you really helped me and you're doing great things. Like, do you, kind of, what do you do with that? Do you, do you accept that compliment? Or do you protect your ego from it? Like, how do you process that without getting messed up? Yeah. Um, that's interesting. I, I that's a very good question because I don't really know. I mean, what I know is that like I've heard that saying, uh, "Your ego is not your amigo." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and I have to, you know, I really come from this uh, intention of like I really want to help. You know, I really want to share the lessons that have that have saved me. You know, and um, I, I really try to so. I, I used to pray for, uh, used to be afraid to pray for humility because I thought that meant that I was going to have to experience humiliation. But um, what I learned is that humility is about being right sized, like not mm-hmm. too high and too low. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, and, and I feel like the theme of my recovery has been to try to find the balance yeah. and then re and re those are the two things that I feel like the, those are the themes of my, my, my sobriety and my recovery. And so I really tried to apply that to the podcast. Um, I, I really do try to um, put my ego aside, but it's tricky, right? Cause sometimes I get frustrated that, you know, maybe the listener based on growing as as I would like it to. And then, or if I spend like, if, unbalanced if I'm spending too much time on it I begin to think why am I doing this you know I I get it you know feel indignant about it why am I is this even helping anybody um I sometimes you don't know if you're in a vacuum people are not super like you said in the beginning my podcast is relatively new you know in 30 episodes um I'm still learning so much and so I don't get a lot of feedback but um I just had an experience recently um so almost a month ago to the day um I got laid off and then a very friend of mine passed away suddenly oh Um, that's terrible it was terrible and I'll tell you her story was all over the news and she's four years old healthy a mother of three she got the flu that turned into pneumonia and then Mm. she became sepsis and then died 18 hours after being admitted to the hospital I'm so sorry thank you and it's just been devastating and but you know what happened Jean um her sister she's in recovery and so is her sister um I I interviewed Katie uh she was my second interview and I'm getting kind of choked up talking about it because it was not that long ago but um 
her sister reached out to me to tell me that it meant her to have this interview because um, she can listen to her anytime. Yeah, and her kids will have that. And um, she told me that she had been so guilty because she was the one who told Katie's husband that she was on drugs and she lost her kids because of that. Mm. But, um, you know, her sister was protecting those kids and in the end, Katie was grateful for it. And, you know, Katie was grateful to her sister and she said it on the podcast. Wow. So she'll always have that. She'll always have that. And that makes (sighs) me feel like, okay, okay. I'm doing this for a reason. Yeah. Oh, wow. That is very powerful. Yeah. Right. So, well, that alone um, is gives you purpose. Knowing. It gives me purpose. So, yeah. you know, like you said, it's really not about me. Um, occasionally I get frustrated. Like, what am I doing? Is this even helping? And then something like that happens. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm set back on my course. And really my intention is, is to help people um, because that's what we're doing, Jean. I mean, this is alcoholism and drug addiction is life or death. And yeah. I have been to more funerals in my 23 years of recovery than I care to admit. Um, so this work that you're doing, I just applaud you for you. You have so many, like 200 plus, well, you're probably 225, 230 episodes. Yeah, I'm getting up there. <laughs> They're yeah. filing up. But you know what's amazing is that um, I've had to learn that what I'm doing is creating a tool and and. It's up to people whether they use it or not. So when someone writes and says how much it's helped them, um, I have to remind myself that I didn't get them sober. They got themselves sober, but they used exactly. this as a tool. And a so tool. I'm really grateful that it's useful, and I love the connection. I think it's cool. But mm-hmm. I try to make sure that I don't take credit for the work that people are doing on themselves because they do that, not me. And it, I found if I, when I did do that, like which I accidentally did at first, um, then it would also just got me when someone relapsed because I felt like I couldn't save them. You were them. responsible. Right. And then I realized, you know what? If I'm not, if it's not right for me to take responsibility for somebody's, this is, goes back to what you were saying, somebody's um, relapse or pain, um, mm-hmm. it's also not fair for me to take credit for their success. I need to leave both with them and mm-hmm. just serve with gratitude. So service and gratitude mm. are all of it for me. And then I can just marvel at the wonderful ways that the universe uses the things that we create and put out there, whether it's a blog or a podcast or an artist. Um, you know, there's some really cool things happening in, in um, the recovery friendly web on Instagram and, you know, people creating art and memes and uh, supporting each other and all of these yeah. things then the universe can use that and we can marvel at the cool things that happen without really taking credit or responsibility for them. And um, that's really special. I love that. We are out of of time time? for today. And I, I know it goes by way too fast, especially when we get interrupted in the middle. Before you go, I want you to tell our listeners who don't know, because some won't, what does ODAT stand for? So ODAT actually stands for one day at a time. So it is O-D-A-A-T. Um, and tell ODAT. Us, and where can they find you? So it's ODAT Chat is the yeah. name of the podcast. And uh-huh. how can listeners find you? Probably the easiest way is either on iTunes or uh, just 
directly from my website, which is um, O-D-A-A-T-C-H-A-T.com. So odatchat.com is my website. So because the, um, I'll, if there's a um, email newsletter sign up, so if they want the episodes delivered right to their inbox, they can just put their email address in and they'll get the episodes in their inbox um, or just go on website or iTunes. That's, those are probably the easiest ways. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here today, and thanks for all you yeah. do. Thank you so much okay. for having me. Stay. Thanks, Carolina. Okay. okay, take good care. You too. Bye-bye. Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame lies behind We think you're strong Just want to be